That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. What's up, y'all? I'm Chanel Gwomake, and my dilemma is, as a professional women's basketball player, I have to be right now in two places at once. Help me! So this sounds really familiar. As someone who always wishes she had a clone, I feel you, girl. And the only advice I can give you is that since you know you can't actually be in two places at one time, the only option is to be present wherever you are. I actually had a neuroscientist on the pod a few months ago, and we got into the downfalls of multitasking and trying to do too many things at once. And basically, we talked about how your brain is like a computer. And if you're multitasking, it can cause you to place information into the wrong files in your brain computer. So, for instance, this one researcher found out that if students are studying and watching TV at the same time, the information from their schoolwork goes into the part of their brain that's specialized for storing new procedures and skills, not facts and ideas. And if the TV wasn't on, the information would have gone into a place where it's organized and categorized in a bunch of ways that would make it easier to go back and retrieve it. So long story short, if you're trying to do too many things at once, if you're trying to be in two places at one time and you're not focused on the task at hand, you're not likely to retain the information you need, do the thing you're doing in the moment well and with accuracy, and you're setting yourself up to just have to clean up all the mistakes you make later. So focus on where you are and what's right in front of you, which is a bunch of boxes and a place you need to move out of. Get yourself over to the West Coast and then figure out what you need to do when you're there. It'll all work out. You're good. There. I fixed it. The commish has spoken. This week's guest is Shanae Ogumake. She was drafted first overall in the WNBA in 2014. She's a former Rookie of the Year, a two-time WNBA All-Star, vice president of the WNBA Players Association, and she is currently on a long-term contract with ESPN as a full-time sports analyst. We talked about a whole bunch of stuff, including her hiding in the bathroom for the entirety of her very first basketball practice, to which she wore jorts. Yes, jorts. Uh, also, what it's like growing up with strict Nigerian parents, WNBA salaries, and pushing for change in the next CBA. And uh, that time she ended up on World Star, and it wasn't cute. Uh, we get into all that. I hope you enjoy my interview with Chine Ogumuke. Well, that's what she said. So this timing worked out quite well. I already planned to talk to Shane. Now we've got all sorts of life changes to talk about. She is literally surrounded by boxes in her Connecticut apartment, getting ready to make the move cross country. So a great time to catch up with Shane and get to know Shane if you don't know her well. So let's go all the way back, Tomball, Texas. And uh, what was young Shane like? Were you always a ball of energy? Oh, my goodness. Yes. And first and foremost, guys, I have to apologize because I, as you alluded to, I'm in the middle of a move. My movers just got here, so I'll be multitasking um, <laughs> as they are literally grabbing my boxes and putting it on a truck. But um, young Chanae was very energetic, was very fun, um, but also very nerdy and sort of had to come into herself. So, uh, you know, I, I had my best friends and I'm again, I'm apologizing because I think they're taping the door open. That's the only time. Uh, I had my best friends, and my best friends were my sisters. So I have three sisters, and we were just nerdy, goofy, fun, young Nigerian-American kids in, in Tomball, Houston, Texas, Cypress, Texas. And um, we, we loved school. We loved to hang out with each other and um, sort of caused ruckus in the most positive way for our parents. So what brought your family to Texas? So the long story is my parents have also like this amazing, um, you know, story, meaning they both are Nigerian. Uh, my mom is from Anambra. My dad is from Oweri. So, so, you know, very, we're both part of the Igbo. They're both part of the Igbo culture. And um, basically they both had sort of different upbringings. My, my mom uh, had more of a cosmopolitan city life. And my dad had a, you know, a nice, both of them had affluent experiences, but in different ways, meaning uh, my dad grew up more in the rural local areas, but still uh, my my grandpa was uh, a big leader in the community. And then similar for my mom, but she was the Lagos city girl. So um, they had the opportunity to get higher education in the U.S. And so that's the first time they really uh, met were, you know, as two immigrants, uh, students that were there getting their education, but they both had plans to go back to Nigeria to run their respective households and businesses, 
and fulfill the parents' legacies, right? But instead, life happens. So they both go to school at Weber State randomly from Africa, from Nigeria to Weber State. <laughs> and, um, and basically, they met there, had a lot of commonalities. And then, you know, they, they, my dad got a huge opportunity to work for Compaq, which is now HP, in Houston, Texas. They got married. And then my dad took the job to Compaq. My parents moved to Houston, Texas, and that's where we're born. So it's sort of like, um, you know, they had similar backgrounds growing up and similar trajectories, but they decided, you know, it's really, they, they got a great opportunity to get education in the U.S. and then started a life in Houston, Texas. And the next thing you know, they have four girls and we're here. <laughs> Are your parents quite tall? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my dad is about 6'4", and my mom is 5'6". Uh, oh my gosh! Really funny in our family, the height is really yeah. funny. So that's the same I'm as my tallest. parents, and and you guys are all oh, so really? tall. Yeah, <laughs> the height is sort of spread in a unique way. So my mom is the smallest out of her siblings. All her siblings are above six feet, and my dad's siblings are all tall. But the funny thing is, my dad's dad was like five five. What? And then my dad, my grandma is about six feet, and then my mom's dad super tall, six, five. And my mom's mom, super small. So like height happens in different places and different ways um, for our family, which was kind of funny. Yeah. yeah, It worked out for you guys. I'm the tallest out of us. It did work out, but I'm the tallest. (laughs) Um, So when you were growing up, were you into sports right away? Um, Yeah. So, I mean, I, I would say once we got into it, our whole family embraced it, but we totally did not see it coming. Like we fell into basketball and I always say we fell in love with it. So, Four girls, Houston, Texas, took care of school. We had a lot of energy. So my mom put us into gymnastics, which is funny because, you know, <laughs> my parents don't really have much experience per se with um, how <laughs> they didn't have much experience with like the, the sporting culture of America. So they needed to put us into something that like, you know, tired us out by the time, like by 6 p.m. And so they put us into gymnastics. And then one of my mom's coworkers said, you know what? Uh, your girls are too tall for gymnastics. You should probably put them in basketball. And that was totally accurate because I always tell people, you know, I was on the uneven bars and I would never make it around the uneven bars because mm-hmm. my butt would scrape the floor yep. because my legs are so long. I had to keep moving um, them further apart. And then they were like, maybe this isn't for you, mm-hmm. Sarah. Yeah, this is not for you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So um, I, we we started basketball. Neck and I went to our first basketball practice. We told the story a whole bunch of times. We were horrible. We were horrendous. Uh, we went in there wearing jorts, keds, you know, um, crew socks, halter tops. Uh, glasses, glasses holder. We had no clue what we're doing while everyone was wearing Adidas and Nike and two ball dribbling drills. And NECA went through that first practice bravely like a first child would. And I was like, I'm the type of person who's like, I, anything I do, I want to be great at. So I went to the bathroom mm-hmm. and stayed there the whole practice and refused to play. <laughs> so I always say that's a metaphor because NECA's always been the guinea pig willing to try and um, also motivating the rest of us to succeed. So she went through the ringer that first year she played. And uh, she, every time she, she learned something that first year when she was 11 and I was 10, she'd come back and, and teach me what she knew. So, like, in our driveway at home, we had this nice, huge home in Houston, Texas, and the driveway was so long. She'd show me crossovers and layups and how to use, you know, form shooting. So next year, when I actually wanted to start playing, I could play. And then, you know, we played in AAU together, middle school, high school, college. And now, I guess we're playing in the pros again. Yeah. It's weird to say that. That's the first time I've really said it. Were you always close with her or was there some growing pains growing up? Always close. Always close. A lot of people say, oh, I would love to see how your backyard battles were and all that type of stuff. And we're like, well, we never did that. We can only remember (laughs) one time where we played against each other. And that was when NECA literally, it was her first year playing basketball. She was 11 and we were at our middle school, Hamilton Middle School in Cypress, Texas, and it was NECA versus the three of us, little runs. And we're just having fun. Like, that's the only time I can really remember us going hard against each other, apart from one play when we were at Stanford and then Coach Tar learned, like, don't ever put the sisters against each other. Because NECA claims, NECA claims I threw an elbow, which oh. I vehemently deny, but big sister's always right, right? <laughs> How much older is she than you? She is, so she's two years older than me, um, but like a couple months, a little and- over a couple months. So like uh, July is her birthday, March is mine, but two years in between. So, because, I mean, it's an interesting, my sister is um, two grades above me, but not quite full two years. Um, And we were very competitive to the point that it took us to getting older to actually 
embrace each other, right? And I'm surprised mm-hmm. playing the same sport and, and being interested in the same things that competitiveness didn't get in the way ever. Was it very clear which one was better or did it not matter? It didn't matter because I think we've always been in the scenario where we've been each other's best friends. And so it's been a unique position where we're always constantly rooting for each other, no matter what. Uh, so I'll be at, so she two years apart, I'll be at her game and I'm like her number one fan and supporter. So she knew that no matter what happened, okay, Shanae is going to like, you know, be there for me. Right. Same for me. Like I know when I got injured overseas, I know no one hurt more than NECA when I got injured, you know? And um, so it's just, we have this unique bond that no matter what, you know, no matter who's around or something like that, that's why we always joke and say we're twins. Because I think we just, as, you know, the two paired older sisters, because we have two younger sisters as well, and they have the same relationship, we're just bonded in, in a, a very, very unique way um, in the sense that we, we understand each other. And maybe that's because we grew up always around each other. Didn't mean that we didn't get on each other's nerves, <laughs> but I think um, in Nigerian culture, we, we understand hierarchy. You know, the oldest sister, you know, is pretty much the parent of the siblings, right? So... I've always respected her standing and her judgment. And so like having that foundation has only been like a healthy thing for us. So she goes to Stanford. Did it become clear to you as soon as she went to Stanford that that's where you would head to? Was it, was there any doubt that you were going to follow her there? Definitely a lot of doubt because I really like this man by the name of Gino Arama. <laughs> and so <laughs> like he just has that personality that, sort of brings out that sort of like dogged competitiveness in you. And um, for me, it was always cool to, you know, also make sure no matter what step I go, like whatever my journey is that, you know, I, I, I do the right due diligence to make sure, you know, I'm making my own decisions apart from NECA. So when NECA went to Stanford, I knew that was an amazing place for her, but I wanted to find the right fit for me. And my family allowed me that opportunity so I went to Notre Dame. Uh, I was interested, obviously, in Stanford and UConn. Those were my top three. But uh, I, I ended up going with Stanford just because, you know, again, as kids, our, our starting point, our foundation has always been education. And so I knew that, you know, as a, as a female, you know, you don't know how long you can play. You don't know how far sports will take you. But you need to always have that background in, in, in education to, you know, be a great fallback. At what age did you actually think about basketball as a career? Because you are an age where you knew that the WNBA existed and you could see examples of women who turned it into a job as a professional player. When did that start to become something you thought about? So the first time I really was infatuated with the aspect of potentially being a female athlete was before I even knew about sports. It was when I watched Marion Jones run in the Olympics, I think. And that was my first time seeing a female compete and I was like, whoa, that is pretty awesome. And I always remember that. Um, and it was unique because, you know, we know what, what her journey has been. And I met her at one point in like maybe a couple of years ago. And I was like, whoa, you know, you're the first athlete that I watched, female athlete I was like so impressed with as a kid just to see that representation. And she's like, well, I'm so impressed with you. I love watching you at Stanford. So it was sort of crazy. But um, number one, you know, obviously uh, I have a great relationship and I'm, uh, I love to be mentored by Lisa Leslie. She by far is the goal model, I would say, you know, like, like you, like that people that have just set goals, achieved them, and also helped uplift the game. And so Lisa Leslie, by far, I, I looked at how she, you know, impacted not only like the culture of basketball, but just sports in general and did it with grace and femininity, femininity and then also was fierce at it. Um, and so she was the first one. That's when I started understanding Lisa. That's when I under, started understanding, oh, the WNBA, like this is, a cool entity for potentially, you know, basketball players. But I never thought I would be, and NECA is the same. We never thought we'd be WNBA players, never. Uh, we just looked at basketball as like, wow, it's given us so much. We don't even know how far it can take us, like, right? But it's funny, I always give the, the, the whole um, story about NECA even choosing to go to the WNBA because she, her senior year, was like, oh, I want to be a doctor at Stanford. I was like, I was a, like, annoying little sister that was all over the messaging board thing. I was like, um, NECA, yo, it's midway through the season, bro. I think we should change <laughs> up because you like, everyone's saying it's going to be a number one draft pick. Like maybe <laughs> we should hold off on doctor for a moment and see what this is. And it wasn't until NECA, maybe like after the final four that she's like, okay, you know what? I'm, I'm all in on this. That's how 
uh, much academics have been ingrained in our minds. And so it's just as super funny um, as Neca and I look back and we're like, Neca, you know, you still were tripping on not even becoming a WNBA player, like until your senior year. And then look at her now. She's the president of the WNBPA. And so that's why, like, we, it's so funny. I remember on my draft night, I just looked at her. I was like, Neca, do you, like, do you feel where we, like, how is it possible that we're here right now? Because we're just these raggedy, funny, little, goofy, tall, lanky uh, kids that just would play and have fun and be nerds in school. Like, this is when NECA was 11 and I was 10, and then all of a sudden, bam, our life changed. I wonder, you know, when you were, you know, obviously she was interested in, in, in medicine. What did you think you were going to do? If, if the WNBA wasn't an obvious path, um, what were you studying and what were you imagining that you would become? You know, it's funny because um, a lot of people have said to me, oh, Chanel, I thought you go into politics or, you know, something like that. And I've always been passionate about, you know, society and government. I was always in student council and civil rights club and just, I love, like my mom always says, growing up, you know, kids would watch cartoons, but Chanel, as a baby, you'd like to sit and watch the news. And I, I, I don't even know why, <laughs> but I've always been passionate about, you know, what's going on and being informed. So I don't know. It'd probably be some kind of public service, whether it's nonprofit or um, I don't know if I have the heart for politics these days, <laughs> but uh, maybe something in that realm. I majored at Stanford in international relations. My advisor was Dr. Condoleezza Rice. So it's sort of like all my, I never really planned. It sounds crazy. And I think everyone knows this at ESPN because I'd be living like by the 24 hours, <laughs> but I've never really planned. I just sort of have these passions and I just attack them. And everything has sort of, you know, take, you know, taken form in my life. So IR, I, I was passionate about certain types of classes. I went into those classes. I ended up majoring in international relations and had an amazing mentor at Stanford. So, like, all these things sort of speak to my passions. But I never really have put, like, a blueprint down and say, this is exactly what I want to do. So are you still feeling that? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, are you still feeling that where you're, you're going to ride this ESPN and, and WNBA and then um, – you know, maybe in the future you, you go back and are interested in, in using your degree or, or getting into something else? Oh, if you like, if you have Nigerian parents, you know, your par- you no matter what you do, you can conquer the world. They say, OK, but what about your master's degree? OK, what about your law <laughs> degree? <laughs> so I did last year um, enroll in like test masters LSAT course. And around that same time, I was like, OK, still grinding here at ESPN, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, but absolutely, I, I, I hope to, you know, get an MBA or I thought at first I was going to try to do a JD MBA program. I'm just trying to, you know, make it through <laughs> every time I have a plan, something else happens. But by far, like my goal is before 30 to be enrolled and to be completing my master's in something, hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully soon. And uh, mom, if you're listening, it's going to happen. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me about the video Nerd City Kids that you made at Stanford. Oh no. <laughs> nerd nerd city kid. Nerd 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 city kid. Nerd 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 city kid. Stanford athletes. Hey, nerd city kid. Nerd nerd city kid. So basically it was amazing time at Stanford. I would say it's the peak of Stanford athletics and uh it it truly was a beautiful thing. So two years or three years before I came, uh the football team was like 0 and eleven, infamously bad. And then all of a sudden, it turned around with a swiftness. So um, this is when we had Richard Sherman, Andrew Luck, Doug Baldwin. A's, 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 and B's on my transcript. Andrew Luck, MVP on our guest list. Pat Wolf, you don't know who you're messing with. Chase Thomas, like so many great football players. Uh, and, and then that coincided with also great basketball. So we had Andrew Luck go number one in the NFL draft in 2012. NASA go number one in the WBA draft. Ashley Hansen go number one in softball. Mark Appel go number one in baseball. So this was the peak of Stanford athleticism. And we were pretty much, as athletes, anytime we'd watch games, people would say, oh, they're great for, you know, students, like, or student athletes, or for some nerds. Like, they never really thought that we could be as committed as kids that typically go to, like, you know, football schools or something like that, or basketball schools. We couldn't be as successful. So I think... As, as athletes, we try to redefine that narrative that nerd does not necessarily mean something negative. Nerd is cool. And, um, and basically, it was just funny. I, it was uh, over, so this was next senior year, over Christmas break. We're sitting in the hotel because everyone goes home and we stay in the hotel. We don't stay on campus. And we're listening to Tyga, who came out with Rack City. And I 
freestyle a lot. Not good. I'm not going to say I'm like the next Cardi B or anything. <laughs> and I don't even like that I put Cardi B first, but whatever. I, even though I, sh- I stand for Cardi B. Um, <laughs> but like I've always done some silly stuff before games in high school and in college where I'd freestyle about our opponents before we go. Pretty much a lot of trash talk. So I was just freestyling, and I was like, oh, nerd, nerd, city kid, nerd, nerd, city kid, nerd, 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 city kid, nerd, 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 city kid. You know what I mean? Like, I was just like, we a nerd, city kid, just making fun of it. And so in our boredom, I just wrote this rap. And then NECA looked at it and refined it. And so the next day in practice, uh, Coach Char was late coming to video. And so I was like, oh, let me perform this for y'all. Y'all listen to this rap I did. And so I performed it, and our media guy walked in and was like, yo, that's hilarious, Sinead. That rap is actually pretty good. And so he convinced me to, like, pretty much try to do a music video about it. So I pretty much made a group text of Stanford athletes. Hey, guys, I'm going to do a music video. Let's, we're doing it at, you know, XYZ, like these two locations. Come through if you want. I think Andrew Luck came through. I'm not sure. No, Andrew was in the second one, maybe. Like, Sherm was ironic. Was, was Doug campus. Baldwin like, in it? There was a rumor of Doug yeah. Baldwin. I'm pretty sure, yeah. There, like, a lot of different <laughs> athletes were there at the time. Like, it's just, it's just funny. So, um we did the video. I had a whole bunch of our athletes' friends come through. And then uh, next thing you know, the video low-key kind of went viral when I was at Stanford. And then, you know, it, and then official, then it was Nerd City. And then the following year, we started calling it Nerd Nation because it's anybody that's affiliated to Stanford or any school or anybody that, like, really pursues being an academic and wants to make it, like, you know, feel confident in being a quote-unquote nerd. We support you. So it became Nerd Nation just, like, as a call to action. And then the following year, next thing you know, I get a Stanford brochure and it says unofficially, like on the bottom right, unofficially known as Nerd Nation, like as a trademark or something. I don't know. <laughs> so we sort of spiraled out of control. But we just wanted to make nerd not feel like a negative for all those kids out there that feel like um, they're they're not cool because they love to study and they love school. of the Bay, yeah, we ruin it. Red letterman on the field killing it. Graduate classes first, yeah, we don't trip. Got your brain all brain sick Cause we learn and we win You know what it is Nerd city kid, nerd, nerd city kid Well, nerd has taken on a whole new meaning now it, It's uh, It's been reclaimed for positivity So <laughs> yeah. that's good Good Um. So you ended your Stanford career As the all-time career scoring leader For either gender in Pac-12 conference history But then Kelsey Plum beat you two years later Do you have some sort of message for Kelsey? Would you like to? Would you like to shout her down in any way? Yeah, Kels, why won't you let me live for a little while, bro? Like, it took me, uh, that, that record stood for like 20 something years. And then it, no, I'm just she, she deserved it. She was balling. She was balling. And, um, you know, I, I love Kelsey, so I'm not mad. Records are meant to be broken. And if Lisa Leslie can't have that record, right. I shouldn't have it. Right, right. Um, so you get drafted number one overall. Was that pretty obvious that that was going to happen, or were you surprised on the day of? So it's hilarious. Everyone knew that I was getting drafted number one except myself. The funny thing is the reason why I didn't know is because everyone assumed I knew, so no one said it. But I'm like, what? So I remember I was freaking out um, because they do these mock draft runs in the draft, you know, for the analysts to be ready. And um, when they were doing it, we were getting our hair and makeup in that area. And I remember they're like, number one pick, Odyssey Sims. I was like, oh, snap, Odyssey's going number one. I didn't know this. <laughs> I, but, you know, it's just being an ESPN employee now, you understand why you do those dry runs to be prepared the day of. So when it was happening, like two minutes before the draft, we saw the Tina Charles trade. And I was like, oh, snap. Like, if she's traded, there's, like, then there's all bets are off. But if Tina Charles was getting traded, then, of course, they were probably going to pick me because I'm, like, the same position. But I wasn't thinking like that. I wasn't even thinking in general. So I remember two minutes before, Neck was like, she turned me and she grabbed my arm. She's like, Sinead, you need to get yourself together. You are a mess right now. <laughs> and then I, I was a mess. And um, I, I always tell people, and it's funny because I think everybody's boy, was it Daniel Jones? Um, <laughs> talked right. about it too. People said, oh, I said, I was like, oh, um, I blacked out because like you're feeling so many emotions. I got my name called. I hugged my family. And then I like, I literally blacked out for 10 seconds. I was like, whoa, this is happening. Uh, so it was a special moment to be drafted number one. Oh, and then literally look to my right and see my sister who was drafted number one two years earlier. And I remember at her draft, I was like, man, I really want that feeling. Not just to be drafted, but drafted number one. My mom and dad were there. My uncle was there. Like, it just was a tremendous feeling. And then I'm thinking about my cute little sisters that are probably going ham at home. You know, so like... <laughs> It just was, it was just all time. It was an all time great moment. 
So you get to the sun, and was there any part of you that had already thought about working as an analyst, or how long into playing in Connecticut before you look across town at at ESPN in Bristol and think, you know, maybe I could do something here? So I have a strange um, experience, you know, entering broadcasting because I never thought I would consider myself like to be a broadcaster. Uh, when I was in school, though, you know, I'd always be great. Like I'd have fun with learning from the media folk and just like sit in the control rooms and say, oh, this is how this happens. But like I alluded to earlier, I never like I just pursue these passions, not knowing where they'll take me. So I was just curious. So um, I get drafted in Connecticut, number one. Uh, immediately I do a car wash uh, for ESPN. And when I was at a car wash, I meet who you know and I absolutely adore and I consider her my very god sister, Lisa Stokes, who's one of the huge talent, you know, um, you know, producers and recruiters. And she's a huge women's basketball fan. So I do the car wash where I'm on Highly Questionable, which, by the way, I never watched Highly Questionable before the car wash, which you know all about. And I was caught so off guard. I was like, oh, are these people... I was like, are these people throwing shade at me? Like, I remember that being one of my favorite. My like, oh, snap, these people are coming from my throat. Um, but I do the car wash, and uh, and basically, I, but ball is life. So, I, you know, I go and have my rookie year, and I wanted to win rookie of the year. I just competed so hard, but eventually I get injured in Italy going and playing overseas. And then after that, uh, I, you know, I'm rehabbing at home after having my surgery. I'm out for a year and a half. And I'm just watching ESPN and CNN and, you know, all these programs and just basically, you know, feeding my mind, trying to figure out like, oh, this is like what's going on in society and all that stuff. But I end up going back to Connecticut rehabbing again. And when I'm rehabbing, Lisa Stokes reaches out and says, hey, Chanae, it's the summer period, which is the WNBA season. I know you're out, but we're looking for talent to fill in during the summer. So I come in and my first real appearance on ESPN is guest hosting his and hers. Um, nice. And then also two days on first take. Now, when I heard I was doing first take, I was like, you know, let me dive into this show. I was like, oh, snap. <laughs> this, this is a beast of a show. How am I going to survive? So I remember for those first two weeks before I was on, I was watching the show religiously. I was watching NFL Live. I was watching all these things. And I was just trying to educate myself. I was calling my best friends from Stanford who played football and then, you know, international soccer players. Like, please educate me. So for me, it was like a sink or swim moment at that moment because I was like, okay, let me put myself in the best position, see how this goes. Well, I, I had fun, and I, and I did it with um, George Sedano and uh, Freddie Coleman, and uh, it was great. Maria Taylor was uh, on his and hers that day, and Marcus Spears. So, like, it was interesting, like, now seeing our journeys and where we are now. But long story short, um, after that, when I was hurt and in Connecticut rehabbing, after that experience, they started plugging me in uh, here and there. But then I realized in TV, I was like, if I'm interested in this, it's all about reps. So they gave me about 20 women's college basketball games cold. Like, you know me, after I did those shows and just had fun, I did those games cold. I also went to the Pac-12 Network and took another 20 games. I started doing things with Uninterrupted right when they launched. Uh, and I did a whole bunch of different, like, small platforms. So I had a pretty big slate for one year because I had to create income because I wasn't playing overseas and I felt like this was the best thing. So I did that and it was good. But I learned from that experience that, oh, as much as I love calling games, I actually like reacting and commentary in studio. But then again, by that time I was healed, ball is life. I go back, (laughs) have a comeback season, was amazing, um, you know, to be back on the floor. And then I go play in China, injured again. This one was a heartbreaker, you know, injured my Achilles over in China, similar to exactly what Brianna Stewart's going through. Right. Uh, fly back quickly, recover. And, you know, but after that, I was like, you know what, Shanae, like you need to not play overseas. You need to continue to find opportunities. So ironically, at that time, ESPN launched SportsCenter Africa. And so being in Connecticut and being African in Connecticut and being an African that knows sports in Connecticut sort of lined me up pretty well for that job even though I didn't know I was going to get it. So I went in as an athlete to be interviewed uh, with my brother from another mother, Phil Murphy. And then immediately once I landed in LA after going on that sports center Africa show, um, the boss, Sean Riley at ESPN called Allison back, my agent, Allison Gaylor, and was like, Hey, can Shanae come back from scripts and prompter and stuff? I went back, tried it, never had any expectations. And then they offered me on like pretty much, you know, on site to be one of the co-anchors and to, 
because it made sense, you know, Sports Center Africa and having an African athlete that's in broadcasting to deliver news was great. But there was a way bigger picture there. And I always say that this was my favorite role I've ever done in broadcasting because being Nigerian and going back to Nigeria so often in Africa, like in the past years, I've been to Kenya, Rwanda, South Africa, Nigeria, all that stuff. Um, it's, it's huge because being able to be broadcast across millions throughout Africa, not only was I getting silent reps where I learned the business and how to do things and handle interviews and stuff like that, but I knew that the young people watching the, in a patriarchal society, especially throughout the continent of Africa, they're going to see a, a, a female athlete that's empowered, delivering their sports news that they want to know. And maybe they'll think better upon the young girls throughout the continent that actually want to p- pursue sports in that patriarchal society. So like this, that role to me spoke the most to my soul, but it also gave me the most opportunity because now I'm in the ESPN fold. They're almost, you know, four days a week. And the next thing, you know, you know, Sports Center says, hey, Chanae, we hear your NBA takes and you're working and you're around here. You always have opinions. Why don't you come on Sports Center as an NBA analyst? This happened like, what, a year and a half ago? Went on Sports Center once, had a blast, and then from then it blossomed into this, you know, multi platform role. So I never really thought these things out, but, you know, by nature of being Nigerian, American, you know, love news as a kid and just, you know, seeking opportunities, fortuitously placed in Connecticut, injured, humbled. And now having to seek opportunities, you know, like it just it was just honestly like the perfect convergence of everything. Back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. One of the best parts about my job is that I don't have to hire anybody. In fact, I don't really go to an office. I don't have to have small talk around the coffee machine. I just do my job with cool people and then I'm done with it. And one of the things I hear about from other people, like my parents who are constantly having to hire people or my husband when he used to have to hire people, is that it sucks trying to get good people to work for you. They're hard to find. They're hard to keep. And when you got open positions and you need work to be done, you need to find good applicants. Well, that's why ZipRecruiter is here to help those of you who are in the hiring business. ZipRecruiter.com slash said is where you go to find qualified candidates. They send your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, and they don't stop there. As applicants come in, ZipRecruiter analyzes each one, and they spotlight the top candidates so you never miss a great match for your job. ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. That's right, first day. Right now, my listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash said. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash S-A-I-D. ZipRecruiter.com slash said. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. That's what she said. I'm sure you would have found some crazy hustle if you were, you know, at some WNBA team in the middle of, of nowhere or that were somewhere that didn't have this opportunity. But it feels like it was meant to be. And, and now, you know, you are traded to the Sparks. And for anyone who's not digging deep enough... It looks like, wow, how convenient. She gets to play with her sister. She gets to go to a place where ESPN has a bunch of offices so she can continue her career. But you actually asked for this, right? So basically, um, you know, my experience in Connecticut, I love it. Like, and I still consider Connecticut home. I will still live here for most of the year, you know, when I'm probably not in the summer. Um, But, you know, there there were some situations that I had to deal with over the course of the off-season and, you know, I love the organization and, and I love my teammates and like that's family. Um, there are some situations that really brought me back to, to you know, like to reality and realize that it was a, a business, not necessarily like as human as you want to express your feelings and your intentions and hope people meet you halfway. Uh, it just was sort of humbling to hear some things that happen, you know, in sports and the industry. And, uh, so that like, I, you know, the past few months I had to deal with a couple situations where I'm like, Whoa, you know, this is a business. I know people always look out for themselves. Um, and you know, it seems like athletes are treated like commodities and, you know, products, not necessarily individuals. It just sort of shook me a little bit to my core. And I'm the type of person that no matter what I do, I do 110%, a hundred percent, you know, I go as hard as I can in it. And once my heart is not in it, and my heart was humbled through the course of the off season, you know, with things I was hearing, you know, it just, I, I wanted to be honest and upfront with my team about the situation that was happening that I was surprised and taken aback by, but then also, you know, let them know that, Hey guys, like maybe there's some kind of mutual way that we can all move forward. Right. 
Right. And, um, and I have, I'm in this unique and amazing, but very difficult position of trying to balance two careers. And I never want to be in a position where I feel like I'm giving less or I'm treated less or feel less than, you know, I want to always feel empowered and growing and creative and curious. And over the course of the past few months, there were situations that I observed and heard from multiple people, players that just did not give me the, the hundred percent warmth that I felt, you know, and it's the business of sports. And I, and you know, to this day, like I love everybody that I've interacted with and you know, our fans are fantastic. My teammates, I love them. Like I, <laughs> like I'd go to war with them, but it was just a reality check for me over the course of the off season. And to this day, like I'm not, you know, I, I speak, I'm a hundred percent positive about my experience, but I was brought, you know, to reality a little bit based on things that were happening and I just realized if my heart's not in it because of the way these situations are, like, that's not fair to either one of us. And I'm going to try to, you know, and I try to be a human being and reach halfway, but, you know, people tend to get frustrated. But this, I, I just am happy that, you know, hopefully both of us, you know, our te- Connecticut son and then myself have great opportunities in the future. You know, as a fan of the uh, of the Chicago Sky, I've had two superstars in Sylvia Fowles and Elena Deladon ask out and essentially threaten to sit if they don't get traded. And part of that is WNBA contracts that are extremely limiting in terms of movement for players for far too long, far too deep into their contracts. It's like a franchise tag. We won't get super inside baseball on it, but it essentially works like a franchise tag, but for longer. And and so the only way sometimes to have a player be able to switch teams uh, and not, not already be fairly well into their career is to ask out. But there's obviously some stigma that's attached with that. Are you worried at all about the re- reaction once it becomes more public? I've only I've seen on a couple websites the sort of rumors and 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 the conversation surrounding you asking out. Um was that a difficult decision for you to make knowing that you do feel a, a certain way about the team and the fans? You know what? What does Michelle Obama say? When they go low, we go high, right? Anybody that knows me and, and, you know, and I have a nice relationship with or, you know, whether you're a stranger on the street or um, you and I who are getting to know each other and rooting for each other, you know where my heart is. And I'm always a genuine and 100 percent person. Uh, And for, you know, for people to be frustrated and I, I, I totally understand that when a player sort of has to make a decision for their life. Right. But for so long teams make decisions and operate and have conversations that are for their hundred percent benefit. And at times it just feels like in the WNBA, um, you know, there's, it's hard when there, there, there are no real incentives to allow athletes to stay in that same city. For instance, like you have the supermax in the NBA, right. That you can offer a player and that will com- probably convince them to stay in a, a small market or any market. Right. In the WNBA, there's no real provision like that. And then on top of that, they have the core ability where they can maintain players and keep mm-hmm. them, right? So that's why it's, it's extremely frustrating when players are pretty much at the mercy and even, like, not necessarily gaining, um, you know, like, any incentive on top of that. But, um, you know, at this point, like, the, I've, I've heard, you know, people have called me, Shanae, I've seen these things floating around and, like, this is what you did and this is what you did. Most of the stuff if not all, is entirely false. But I'm not going to, like, speak on that because, you know, I, I just try to focus on positivity and the opportunities that, you know, I'm very blessed and fortunate to have. Like, there are people that claim to know, and a lot of the people that put out information, um, it's ironic because the sources that they use are the people that literally create the problems in the beginning. But, right. you know, like, it's it just, it's like, I, I'm not going to waste time on negative energy um, and people know that that's how I am as a human being. Like people, you know, I could have a teammate that literally is crazy or acting funny, but if I see that competitive desire in them, I will tolerate whatever because I know we're striving for the ultimate goal and the same goal. My team knew where my heart was. They knew what I was dealing with. And it was never like I was, um, you know, trying to come at them or put them in a bad situation. I was just coming to them as a human being saying, guys, this is what I'm dealing with. And this is what the situation has been that I've been hearing of. And I've never, you know, like, and I just said, hey, guys, this is at this point, like, I have to operate in a, in a place that will be healthy for me as a, a sister, as a family member, as a professional. And hopefully you guys can meet me halfway. And I'm super grateful that Connecticut, you know, in the end heard me. But when the other stuff happens, 
you know, it's just part of the nature of sports, you know, and, and, and it's, it's unfortunate, but like, why give life to it? Right. <laughs> At this right. point, I have, you know, a, a beautiful family, you know, friends, um, uh, 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 I'm very blessed to have a cool career. I'm just going to focus on that and not the negativity and the conjecture and all that stuff, because people that know me, know me and know where my heart is. And this, it's the hardest thing because like, I'm so used to just grinding, waking up at 3am here in Connecticut, going to ESPN, then going to workout, going home, like home at five and then watching these games. So too, and just like living this unreal, like difficult, but also amazing life. And, you know, when things happen in the peripheral that sort of shake you to your core, it just is tough to deal with. But you know, I just focus on the positive and I'm just happy. I'm so thrilled to be back with my sister because I've always felt like that's where my heart would be at some point. And after the, seeing the situations that were happening, you know, in the, in the, on the sidelines, I was like, you know what, let's keep it professional. Let's keep it positive, And hopefully the situation can be resolved. So I guess that's what I have to say on that. So you're the vice president of the WNBA Players Association, and um, there's so much conversation about salary, about expectations for athletes um, needing to go play overseas in order to supplement income. Um, the NBA PR reached out to a handful of folks to clarify that there was recently inaccurate information in the media regarding WNBA pay. This, of course, was in response to Brianna Stewart's injury and uh, said that the average compensation for WNBA players last season was 116000 The top-paid players' compensation was more than 187000 But um, players like Diamond DeShields are, are speaking out about that, saying the only players who get that average are six-year vets, and the other are for vets. And that, you know, a, a Sue Bird saying average comp, schmaverage comp, you know, you're twisting the <laughs> issue at hand. A lot of players seem to be reacting to an, an odd decision from NBA PR to reach out and try to clarify, but not speaking specifically to anything, right? Just this vague, inaccurate information report. Um, that combined with the fact that the WNBA very often seeks to, in the form of Adam Silver, seeks to remind people that the league is losing money when in every other growing league, um, positivity is pushed in order to sell it and increase interest. Why do you think it is that the tact for the WNBA always seems to be this sort of, well, we can't do any more because it loses money? Yeah, that's the first thing I, I, I sort of brought forward once we decided to opt out of our CBA. The first thing that the league said was, well, did you know that the WNBA loses money? I'm like, since when do we have a, pro- when you have a product that you want to sell, but you, all you do is put out negative information Mm -hmm. about it um it's unfortunate because even though our league is not necessarily where the nba is to a large degree we're only 23 24 years old and we're in a great position at that point comparatively right um and so i it's it's just funny because we all saw the tweet and we're like oh that's interesting you want to shift the narrative from salary to compensation so that the perception is that, oh, well, they actually make more than what, we, what most people think. But the irony is in that you're telling on yourself because you have a league full of amazing women that are willing to put in the work to try to put it in this best position ever. And instead, the messaging is that we're not necessarily here 100% to, to – push the right narrative like that we are here with you we do all want the same things instead it's like oh no 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 no. y'all should be happy like and that's the big thing I think you know for so long as women we're told to be grateful for what we have especially when it's outside the normal norm of what we normally do but I always point to this point where in uh, 2016 obviously a huge thing happened we had the first female real nominee in the sense of Hillary Clinton almost you know winning an election And it was almost like a a woman's reckoning, meaning like we've always had voices, but it's just great that now people are hearing us and they're seeing our collective power. And so with that election and women coming out in the women's march, you also see unique times in which female athletes are leveraging their power, harnessing their collective voice. So you had the U.S. women's hockey team that went for the Winter Olympics and pushed for a better situation. And then what do they do? They win the gold. You right now see the U- U.S. women's national soccer team, you know, fighting for better pay. And, you know, they're obviously probably the leader in, you know, for as women in their category of sports, right? Like as a team, uh, us, we just opt out of our CBA. And most importantly, not too long ago, we see um, U.S. gymnastics 
take down Larry Nassar. So it's, it's this point where, where we're not just settling and not just being grateful. We're fighting for our future. And we want all stakeholders to see the, the potential, right? And it's unfortunate that, you know, at times we have to go to our higher ups, so be it the NBA, and articulate, like, yes, we understand. We know, like, it's funny. Everyone's like, oh, everyone wants to be Google professors and say, well, the WNBA lost $12 million last year. I'm like, yes, we did, but we are also generating a lot of money, too. I know we operate in a loss, but as a league, as a whole, we are generating good money. We do have potential. Um, and, and it's just funny when you see the Google professors out there trying to say, well, you know, basic economics and things like that. In the WNBA, most of us have our college degrees. You know, in the WNBA, you, you, you tend to leave after potentially your junior year. But if you're there to your junior year, you pull a Sabrina Unescu and you go back for your senior year, uh-huh. because then you might as well get your degree and then get your professional opportunity, right? Um, so we have a lot of wonderful and, quote, this is the language, you know, wonderful and woke women. I'm sorry, guys, they're taping up my mattress. <laughs> um, in the WNBA that are, are doing the homework, doing the research, understanding the financial response, realities, and also understanding that if you want to treat us like a real business, you have to give us real investment. And the time is now. Because despite what people say, you know, the WNBA is popular. Now, it might have, you know, this crazy visual reaction from social media trolls, but there are a lot of people, and I always, what do I call them? Oh, geez, I can't remember what I usually call. Oh, yeah, the, like, social media freedom fighters that are out there defending us, right, and also out there speaking on us. And we got, we have a lot of NBA players that come to our games and are like, whoa, like, this is amazing, you know? Like, there's so, many, there's so much positive energy internally and externally happening with our brand. It's just unfortunate when we have to sort of, like, it's sort of like you're flying a plane into tailwind. Like, we should not be in that position. All time, or like, look at me, switching over from, like, planes to boats. Like, <laughs> everything should be raising, you know, if we're a company, like, rising all tides and all that stuff. Um, you know, so when we hear that type of stuff, we're like, okay, we see what you're trying to do. But we just wish we didn't have to, fit, uh, you know, fight an uphill battle internally. Yeah, you know, there's been some interesting stories written about the WNBA in relation to other leagues that are around the same age and um, and how those leagues were losing money but got great investment. And, and one of the most interesting things we've seen recently is the AAF, right? You see this yep. fledgling, poorly planned football league that has $250 million investment that comes in their lap when they can't make payroll after one week of the season. And mm-hmm. everyone's talking about it. Everyone's hyping it up. It's getting all sorts of publicity. And you wonder if it's just partly the swagger that comes with belief in men's sports and why everyone buys into that, whereas a WNBA that's been in existence for 20-plus years now and is profitable in many ways but needs a further investment to take that next step, if if just the way it's being positioned by the people running it are preventing it from taking that next step. I wonder, as you look to fight this latest CBA, what are the priorities for you in terms of changing the way that the investment is made into the salaries, the players, and and marketing and everything else? Well, you know, to the NBA's credit, I think Adam Silver is a fantastic leader in the sense of he's giving everyone the creativity and the latitude to find answers and solutions. And he's also hearing us and saying that, you know what, like if you want to – if you're willing to push the brand and do creative things and try to find something that really sticks and speaks to the people and the fans and the consumer, um, you also, that does mean you, you're going to have to, you know, invest in the players who are in the, who are the product and who are torn between two worlds, you know, overseas playing there most of the year and also playing in the WNBA. But like, you know, bringing up the AAF is a fantastic example. My best friend played in the AAF, his name is Ed Reynolds. And when this was happening, I was talking to him about, you know, hey, like, what was your experience? And he played for the Atlanta team, and he was like, I still think he's going to be back in the NFL hopefully soon because um, he's just that great of a player. Uh, he was saying, you know what, it was a great platform. It was a great showcase to show what we can do, right? The thing is, the WNBA has already shown what it can do, and if you look at the ratings, the metrics, the merchandise sales up, I think, 66% streaming. Like, there's, And we just signed a new deal with CBS. Like, there's so much positive energy happening as a brand standpoint um that like we we feel confident in you know like in uh, asking and receiving investment but the problem is like okay how are we going to do this do we have the the infrastructure to sustain this next big push uh you know how many people actually work on the WNBA? like we we know how many employees the nba has 
how many people exclusively work on the WNBA? I, you know, I would say the numbers, I, I wouldn't say, you know, maybe 20, 25, maybe, like maybe less than, maybe a little more. I just spoke um, at this amazing uh, panel with, with Paul Rabel. And he's a friend that I've come to know the past few years. Paul Rabel is pretty much the, I would say, the Michael Jordan of lacrosse. He started his own PLL, uh, Premier Lacrosse League, Professional Lacrosse League, in which he literally imagine a player, the best player, maybe LeBron, stepping aside and saying, guess what? I'm going to start my own basketball league. Well, that's what he's doing with lacrosse. And I was picking his brain. I was like, hey, like, how many staff members do you have on PLL? Which is, you know, like, you know, they have, I think, I think it's, six teams and they travel around and I think they have more staff members there on this newly germinating league than we do as you know as a WBA it's like exclusively meaning you know and I know the NBA leverages a lot of its already known resources to help but like you know we have to create an infrastructure and a, a, a that allows us to grow right but you know I'm really excited about the future because I do think we have the leadership in Adam Silver and like the reason why we're taking so long to get a new president is because we want the right person that is there and has staying power, you know, like right. we are taking the right steps forward. And as players, you know, being on the WMBPA as players and, and, and representatives of our players, I think we're in the right position to fight because we know that, you know, as women, we can't just have that mentality that, Oh, we should be grateful. We need to, we need to go after what is ours and what we want. And, you know, because no matter what, like, it's not for us. WBA players don't play, you know, just to, for the money. We play because we want to be caretakers of a legacy of Lisa Leslie and Lauren Jackson. And even we still got legends playing in Sue Bird and Cynthia Cooper and Tina Thompson. Like, we play because of them. We want to uplift their legacy. But we also want to build a situation where the rising generation has a better league than what we had. And, you know, so we sort of have to, like, you know, pull up our sleeves. What do they say? Grab your brute strap and, like, get in, you know, get in there and, and, and fight. And I think the great thing is that the league has that exact same mentality. They're going to fight, too, with us. It just is tough sometimes when we're dealing with <laughs> these narratives and these tweets and all that stuff. But I am excited for what is to come. And I do think we have, like, you know, a great group of women in the WMBPA that are, that are literally giving everything that they have, no matter where they are, <laughs> to try to put, us, put ourselves in the best situation. We have a great executive director in Terry Jackson as well, so... And I would say you like the president in Neko Gumake's too. So that's, that's, she's all right. She's all right. Um, well, there's lots more to get to on that topic. And I, if people are interested, I urge them to read some of the well-researched articles about it, especially getting into the lack of transparency in terms of profits and numbers, uh, presented to the public. Because, uh, like you said, it's pretty easy to, for people to just, uh, you know, try to Google and, and, and think that they have an, an idea of what's going on, but it goes a lot deeper than the surface conversations. And, and that's part of what's going to have to be put on the table for the new CBA. We'll be right back with more. That's what she said with Sarah Spain. Tissot is the official watch of the NBA. Each one of Tissot's timepieces delivers quality performance and traditional luxury. This graduation season, get the NBA fan in your life a Tissot watch. The Tissot Chrono XL is a great watch for those looking for a sporty chronograph with Swiss technology at an unbeatable price. Shop now at us.tissotshop.com. That's what she said. We're running out of time, but before I let you go, you have to do... The one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect to join the Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right. The 10 questions everybody answers and nobody expects. Number one, your Desert Island album. You can only have one. Ooh, my Desert Island album. Can it be my Afrobeat playlist? But that probably is not an answer. <laughs> I don't know. Let's see. It'd probably be, you know, one of my, oh, shoot, this is a hard one and I'm supposed to be quick with it. <laughs> I don't know, man. I might go with a Chris Brown one from my childhood adolescence just because it's like got every range of emotion and everything's a banger. But then I could also go with John Legend's uh, whatever one where I know every word to it. But let's just stick with a Chris Breezy album because that's my, my day one. That's my day no, one guy. No comment. You know, no, no comment on <laughs> I know, Chris Brown. I know, I know, no. I know, I know. <laughs> Moving on. Number two, <laughs> what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success? I think just uh, the mentality in which you have an opportunity and you have a passion and just attacking it. 
Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure? My biggest failure is putting, you know, grinding so hard that I feel like life is passing me by. Mm. And I've lost opportunity to, you know, be as close with some of my friends and loved ones. But um, they say do it while you're young, but it's hard to do it while you're young and by yourself. And, you know, so I would say it's, it's that part. Like, I wish I was able to be there um, and not have to put my life on pause. But, you know, you know how that is. Yeah, you can find balance, though. You got to find balance. You got to enjoy it while you're young. I need young. to find better balance. Yes. Yeah. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? <laughs> no. Not, no. Not ever close? Never close. No, I had any time I would get close. Someone by the name of NECA would probably pop up and do all the fighting for me. <laughs> uh, number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be? Ooh, Beyonce. <laughs> Good one. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Ooh. So, mini story. Um, you know, I alluded to having to learn on, as on the fly when I was getting great opportunities as an NBA analyst, but I was also playing in the WNBA. And one of the hardest days of my life, <laughs> being a little dramatic, was when, you know, I didn't know how hair, beauty, look, all that stuff on TV, you know, you know how, like, you have to learn through the fire, like, oh, yeah. figure out what your look is. Oh, yeah. But imagine that while you're also in season. I went on TV and I just didn't know, like, you know, this is the standard in which you have to be like, do your hair every week and a half and do your nails every week. And like, because if you don't, you end up going all over social media. So there's a video <laughs> that people, it was horrible. There's a video that someone like zoomed in on my hair. And I, you know, at that point I didn't know how to really do my hair and stuff like that. And, and so it was really embarrassing for me because I was just getting my opportunity for the first time at ESPN and, so a viral video goes out and all my friends, it's on Worldstar, all my friends <laughs> text me like, oh, girl, look at what happened. What happened? And, you know, I didn't know any better. I was just grinding, doing, playing in the WNBA and also like literally 10 p.m. at night, driving to Bristol, doing that in the morning, you know, ESPN in the morning, then driving back to practice. Like I was just in this grind of trying to bring my professionalism <laughs> and my nuggets and my notes. And then I get caught up on this, you know, viral trap. And it just was, was it so really on Worldstar? It was on Worldstar. It was everywhere. Like I got four million views on YouTube oh, and no. on Twitter, and it was so. Did bad. this have to do like, with wow. your? Did this have to do with your edges? Yes, it was my edges. You know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and it became a company war, like internal war of like how we treat. But it's true. Like you know, we representation does matter, and like fortunately, ESPN has like have they have safety nets now to look out for people. <laughs> Like us, like me, you know, but before I had no clue about hair and beauty. I was just going on TV and killing them with my knowledge. And then, yep. next thing you know, like people know me as I, I was like, I don't want to be known as a bad hair girl for the rest of my life. <laughs> so that was like the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me. But I uh, learned from there, not only to stay yeah, on yeah. point, but also I learned that, you know what they see. And this is one thing I always tell people. They as a woman, it's tough because at times they see you before they hear you. Oh, totally. And that's why it's. Yeah. I totally, I totally support all the women that made it through, like the Doris Burst, Rachel Nichols, the Used, um, the Robin Roberts, like because they de dealt with that times a million. So that was a learning experience for me. So if you go to my gram now, you see why I'd be stunting on the gram because <laughs> I never want to get got again. <laughs> uh, yeah, there are a lot of thirst traps. That is, that is the thing. Uh, number seven, the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve. Uh, I've learned that perfection is overrated, meaning I have to be okay with making mistakes and I'm getting better every day. I'm just owning my mistakes and just moving forward and not perseverating. My mom says, Shanae, at times you are a perseverator. And I do. I overreact. I freak out. And then my friend's like, are you done now? I'm like, okay, you're right. <laughs> That's a very good one to work on. Number eight, if you could play commish for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society had to adhere to? Ooh. Uh, I would say... If I was a commissioner in society, I would say no social media. We're Whoa. All banning it today. Banning but, social but media. But you're on it Maybe. and you use it. I use it, but like, I don't need it. So right. if I need to put, put my phone down, I can go and interact. And like, I would not say phone calls and stuff. You can phone and text, but I would like us to have normal human social interactions for a day. And see wow. if, you know, we Just can for be a better. day or forever? 
I want to say forever because I still love social media, but I was maybe okay, I do okay. like okay every other month is banned. So <laughs> let's get. I was gonna say together. you're not a very good millennial if you want to get rid of it forever. Maybe just you're right. For a day. You're right. <laughs> just for um, like a- number number nine. What's the most scared you've ever been? Whew. I mean, <laughs> the most scared I've ever been. Mm. We have a very international family, meaning my dad's business uh, at times operates out of Nigeria. My mom is always home in Houston. Um, but, my, you know, my dad and mom here together always. But, like, when he goes to business, he's traveling. NECA was in Russia. Uh, my little sisters were in California at Pepperdine at the time. And I think after my first injury, when I tore my Achilles in China, I was so scared because I knew something was wrong. I was by myself. And I was scared because I knew my family would be scared for me. And, I, and, you know, after the fact, after getting through that situation, like, you know how your families are. Like, they go into superhero mode, which is great. But it was just that awkward, like, 10 minutes before I had to got my phone, talk to my parents, and freak them out. But also, like, just being an international family, like NECA being in Russia, but very close to Ukraine when she played in Kursk when there were international global incidents happening or my dad working in Nigeria and like things happening and just making like us keeping tabs on him. So there are a lot of like, it's a tough thing, global family, but it's, it's also great with technology that you stay together. So our group chat is always popping our woman group <laughs> chat. So we're good. <laughs> uh, number 10, what three words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Um, passionate, uh, let's see. I would say like I don't want to say like fun, but also empathetic. You know, right. I don't know if empathetic is the right word, but yeah, that's a good combo. I wear my heart on my sleeve, and I love people. So that's a good one. Uh, bonus question: Who should I have on this podcast? Ooh. Mm. Who should? Wait, is this like ESPN employees? No, no, no. It's uh, it's anybody, music, sports, entertainment. But, you know, whenever people say, you know, Michelle Obama and Bruce Springsteen and whatever, I'm like, all right, I'll work on that. But maybe also someone <laughs> I could actually get. <laughs> you should have Mecca Ogumike on your podcast. I knew you were going to say that. And, and see how many lives I've told. <laughs> <laughs> um, good luck with the move. Good luck with the boxes. Thanks for taking the time to chat in the midst of all this. We look forward to, you know, I'm bummed because we were just talking about how next time we're in Bristol, Fitz and I and everybody were going to come have a huge cheering section for you at the Sun. So I guess now we got to make a road trip to L.A. I know. Please do. Please come. Or, you know, I will come back here. So either way, I'll, uh, wherever, or in Chicago, you are going to be there in Chicago. Yes, I'm going yes. to make sure you are there. I will be there in Chicago for sure. And I'll be oddly cheering against you and for you at the same time. And, and, and Fitz will just have to take a bus. There you go. <laughs> we'll put Fitz on the bus. He's not above we'll that. Bus. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Janae. Good luck You're with the, the best, move. Sarah. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me. And I fix it. And this week it's going to make me sound old. And I accept that. I accept that I'm going to sound like old man yelling at a cloud, get off my lawn. But the thing that's bothering me this week is saggy pants. They look ridiculous. And I am forced to look at people's entire asses in their boxer briefs and tidy whities And I understand that this is style and I understand that I'm getting older and I'm going to be less and less in touch with what's cool these days. And I understand that I already don't get the very high-waisted jeans that even make people like Kendall Jenner look like she has a little pooch. I I don't get it. I don't get some of the styles of young people. But for a very long time, including when I myself was a young person, I still didn't get the saggy pants thing. And I've read some studies. I don't know how many of them are true and how many of them are just old people trying to uh, get into a moral panic about a style that they associate with, you know, urban culture. But according to some studies, those kind of saggy pants and the weird way that you're forced to walk in order to keep them up is linked to hip problems and lower back problems and, and knee problems because you walk funny because you can't keep them up. So just get a belt or at the very least, at the very least, buy the size of pants where they sit just above your butt. So just a little bit of the underwear is hanging out over the top, not your entire ass. Because I'm telling you how many times I walk around Chicago and I am just staring directly at a full apple, double cheek, pants are underneath. Also, you only have the use of one hand because your other hand is holding it up. 
So I, it just it seems it seems inefficient, if nothing else. So, you know, young people, I know you're going to do whatever you want. I know you're going to listen to me. I know that I sound old, but think of the old people who are forced to stare at your butt cheeks. Think of us every once in a while, would you please? One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this, but who knows? Because the older I get, you know, the more things are making me want to snap. All right, I feel good about what we accomplished today. Pull your pants up, please, at least over the majority of your cheeks. I want to see 75% coverage at the very least of your ass, okay? Great. Hey, guys, have you checked out Katie Nolan's podcast, Sports, yet? This week, she'll be talking about Avengers Endgame, Game of Thrones, the NBA, NHL playoffs, and everything else going on in pop culture. Download and subscribe to Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. If you got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review. Leave your dilemma in the review. I know that some of you have been asking me when I'm gonna get to those. I have a handful of them gathered. I'm going to get to them soon. I'm going to get to your listener dilemmas. Also some extra special celeb dilemmas coming up in the next couple of weeks. So keep an eye out for that. Thanks as always for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs> 